Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. That is the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Please subscribe, follow, rate, and review uh, wherever you can. Uh, we've got a couple, some really great shows coming up in the uh, summer. I've got some really great guests. It's going to be a lot of fun to uh, talk to some of these people about the subjects that we're talking about. And uh, that's going to be all with the Sonic Cinema Podcast. You can also check me out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Admittedly, this year has been a bit crazy as far as being delayed on getting some of those uh, originals for uh, Patreons out there, but I will be working on that as the summer goes on, and that's at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. So last year, we began a new little mini-series for the Sonic Cinema podcast, the Established Classic Series. And wh what I mean by that is basically movies where the reputation, where just the very name of the movie just seems to be synonymous with greatness. Like, you hear this movie's title, you don't necessarily question the greatness of the movie, does that still hold up? I mean, I think the six films we... Certainly, I think the six films that we talked about last year, I think, very much do in a lot of ways. Uh, the three we are going to talk about today, I think, very much do. Uh, Join me, as he did last year for those episodes, is actor Timothy J. Cox. Tim, thank you very much for joining me again. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, so we, one of the things that I've done in basically setting up these trios of, uh, movies is I want to, A, I want to talk about movies that, uh, pretty much have universal, uh, are universally beloved. They're not ones where there's something problematic or, you know, questionable, controversial about them, like Gone with the Wind. Um, but they're movies from the, basically the Hollywood golden age, basically from the thirties to the, to 1960, where just Hollywood seemed to be firing on all cylinders when it came to writing, directing, acting, and just really making populist movies. And we're, you know, it's one of the things I'd made a specific, um, decision to when I, chose at least two of the three films that we're talking about today is I wanted to delve into some of the more genuinely entertaining movies. It's not to say stuff like Casablanca or Sunset Boulevard is not entertaining, but they're also rather serious. And uh, we're going to go ahead and start off with the earliest one to come out, and that is uh, Howard Hawks' Bringing Up Baby, which came out in 1938. It is a screwball romantic comedy. has just tremendous work by Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, and uh, I, it's it's I this one I know is one my mom introduced me to uh, way back in the day, and it's it's just one that is just such an absolute delight. Uh, Tim, let's go ahead and start with you though, as far as talking the, about this movie. I think this movie is is gold standard 
for screwball comedies. It, it really is. I mean, it's if, if you ever hear a discussion of anybody talking about, you know, uh, you know, the zany comedies of uh, of Jerry Lewis or Jim Carrey or anyone like that, it all springs from the tree of Howard Hawks and especially this movie of Bringing Up Baby. The first time I saw it uh, was about was thirty. I think it was like thirty odd years ago, mm-hmm. and I I just you know, you don't, you figure, you know, you watch a movie from 1938, you may not, all right, I'll watch it. I've heard it's a classic it has, but you don't expect to really laugh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at some of the, and this, it's, it is genuinely funny. And it's just the, like you said, Brian, like, you know, they were just back at that time in the thirties up until, you know, start of the 1960s, they just released a bunch of films that just the quality of the writing and the performances and the directing and the innovations with cinematography and editing. Um, this film has all of that. Uh, just um, the rat-a-tat-tat of uh, mm-hmm. the delivery. His thing was always faster is funnier. And, um, you know, revisiting it again, um, it's, it holds up still very, very, very well. And uh, it's still just the gold standard of not only screwball comedy, but I think of many comedies like some like it hot or, you know, all of the, the comedies that have come from, you know, like, like I said, Jim Carrey and, and Jerry Lewis. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and of course the thing that really makes the movie work is the pairing of Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, who were just magic. Like they were, would be two years from now in, uh, in the Philadelphia story. They just have that, there's that certain thing that, you just see on camera it's that that chemistry that you know they could just they could just do no wrong in each other's uh, in each other's company yeah i'm you know it's funny i'm i'm still relatively i i'm still probably a novice when it comes to katherine hepburn but it's like the two the two movies i'm most familiar with her with are this and the line and winner the mm. m- movie she did with peter o'toole and it's funny to see both. It's a you're talking about two dr- dramatically different types of narratives. You're talking about a screwball sure. romantic comedy. Here you're talking about a historical drama in *Lion and Winter*. But in *The Lion and Winter*, I should say that there are moments where it that again she just that acid-tongued mm-hmm. Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, where that that dry. Catherine Hepburn comic delivery comes out, but and of course also, it's it's exactly thirty years uh, thirty year difference between yeah. Uh, both. Yeah, that's exactly what it was getting to because of the fact that it's like the way that Hepburn is able to transmit some of transfer some of her the the way she delivers lines here, the way she goes for the laughs but also the way that those that those um what am i trying to say the way that that delivery also really reveals a lot about the character the way that that transfers between the two films i think is really interesting and it it really does make exciting well and then there's the african queen that she did with uh bogart as well which Mm -hmm. i I've seen. I forgot about that, which is a different type of romantic movie. It's a romantic adventure, sure. but we're going to be talking about Bogart a little bit later here. Um, you know, 
I love that this, the, the thing, you know, most people when they bring up uh, Howard Hawks comedies, most people I think inevitably go towards Is Girl Friday more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly it's, it's a wonderful film. It's a wonderful film. It's a funny film. But I do think it comes down to, it, it does come down to the pairing of Hepburn and Grant here. Mm-hmm. is what I think makes this one just a bit more special. And the thing that is absolutely wonderful about this is that from the moment she is on screen, Catherine Hepburn is just chaos personified in this film. Like, yeah. you can tell with every scene that you see her with, with Cary Grant, that, like, just... Everything else is just the way that everything is going to unfold and snowball and build up. It's it's like a it's like a snowball turns into an avalanche, and it's it's just absolutely insane. But it's also absolutely wonderful. And the thing about you know this movie and his Girl Friday is that one thing that Hawks did is that he never had the performers play for laughs. They play Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell in both of those pictures. They played these characters as if they were playing Hamlet. And that's what makes it funny, even yeah. though the situations are farcical and ridiculous. And But the fact that it's, we laugh because they give it their all and they play it as if they're playing Hamlet. And mm-hmm. that's comedy, what you have to do. I mean, it's... Um, you know, if you're if you're doing it and you're kind of winking at the audience, I mean, yeah, it, it just it just doesn't play as right. But if you're playing it dead solid serious, um, that's where uh, you know you really get the laughs. And you get, I mean, the difference between, I mean, in the theater, I've done a lot of farce in the theater, mm-hmm. and the thing about what about farce is that you just you just have to play it, and you have to play it honestly and true. Don't try to be funny. Um, you have to play it like Hamlet. And uh, it's amazing the things that the audiences will laugh at. Like, you know, we would, I would be on stage and like, oh my God, they're laughing at that. And then of course, you know, it's things that that's the beauty of farce. If like, if an audience goes along with it and you have, and you got them in the palm of their hand, if you deliver it to them uh, right. I mean, you look at theater, there's I mean, so many farces that work. Uh, like noise, Michael Frayn's Noises Off or Ray Cooney's Run for Your Wife, all of them also, Michael Frayn has said that that play sprung forth from, you know, Howard Hawks. Mm-hmm. Growing up watching, you know, Howard Hawks, these movies uh, in the theater. So they've kind of been passed down from generation to generation. And uh, now it, uh, but I, it's, it's an interesting thing about, you know, the state of comedy. Like, I often think of like, you know, a movie like, you know, from 1938, could this be done today and could it be done the way Howard Hawks did it? Or would they go the route of a completely different style and school of comedy, which is like the Judd Apatow yeah. uh, way, also very effective, but a very, very different, mm. you know, it's yeah. not more... Uh, I don't know how to describe it. You know, I, I guess it's a little more in your face, I guess, kind of uh, comedy, if that makes any sense. Like, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, um, but it's interesting to think of like of a movie from 1938, you know, if it would play 
well, you know, if it were released brand new today in 2022. Mm. Um, I think would because of the commitment of the uh, of the performances and of uh, and just the, the the speed and the pacing of uh, of the piece. Oh yeah, I mean I I think the greatness of this movie ultimately is what is what makes it endure. And you know, it's like my first my first inter- my first time wa- I know my first time watching uh, Cary Grant was Another one of his farces from this era, which was Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one's a bit more broad. It definitely plays more towards, you know, the winking at the camera like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that makes something like this all the all the more unique. And I, I think one of the thing one of the things that's great about this is that with Cary Grant's characters, like Every scene in this movie, it's, you know, I, I, Roger Ebert liked to quote Howard Hawks and, you know, when he said, what would make a good movie? It was like three good scenes, no bad scenes. Or three mm-hmm. great scenes, no bad scenes. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, he, he mentioned this in terms of his great reviews movie, uh, great review, movie's review of The Big Sleep, which I mm-hmm. love and is probably my favorite Howard Hawks movie. Sure. But, um, you know, with, with bringing a baby, you have so many great moments, like, like the scenes on the golf course where <laughs> they first meet and he's trying to explain, no, you're playing my ball. And it's like, well, you know, why it's, it's, you know, and she's just continuing to play. She's just basically ignoring him and, you know, then gets to the car and then it gets, and, you know, logically speaking, it, it's, It'd be hard to. I do think, to a certain extent, it would be hard to do a movie like this because of the fact that I think, to a certain extent, audiences would have a hard time believing that Cary Grant would, Cary Grant's character would take the bone that he's been weighing for years up to Catherine Hepburn's apartment with him, and <laughs> and basically putting it in danger. But uh, it the you don't even think about it. It just works yeah. that well as a plot device because it's like, oh, well, this is going to pl- come into play. And it just works. And yeah. and the same thing, you know, with the famous, you know, the, uh, the, the ripping of the back of Catherine Hepburn's dress and, mm. you know, and the way that they just glide, they sort of glide out of the room. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, as far as, I mean, you know, Farce is hard to do on 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 stage, and it's hard to do on screen. And uh, unfortunately, it 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 rarely works. Just because, uh, I, I you know I don't know. Like either an audience just doesn't buy it, or the way it's sold. I mean, you know, and for, for modern film audiences, I mean, Peter Bogdanovich did a wonderful homage to Howard Hawks and What's Up Doc, which yeah. I think. Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill's best performances, but like that and that, you know, in the context of doing that, I think it was 1972 when that came out. Mm. That work had very like, wonderful similarities and winks to uh, bringing up Baby. Um, but like, you know, when you think about, it, if you run down the list of like of, of like farce is really not done on 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 film anymore for whatever reason. Either they think it maybe doesn't sell. Um, but it's 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 always interesting to revisit because it's uh, 
it, it's so intricate and, and like timing and, you know, you know, playing it, you know, too hard or playing it, you know, underplaying it too much. It's, it's a hard thing uh, to do. Like I said, I, I've done farces many, many times in the theater and, you know, it's, it, it feels new to me every time I do it because, you know, you just don't know if you're, if you're pushing too much, if you're, uh, if you're not doing enough or, but here Hawks was able to, I don't know, coax honesty out of the performances in farce, which is hard yeah. to do. Well, and I mean, it helps that he's, you know, his film stars two of the greatest actors in movie history. But sure. I mean, also you, you think about him as a director, he, he, he crossed so many boundaries as far as home, how many genres he did. He did Westerns, he did crime movies, he did comedies, he did epics. And, you know, all of the ones that I've seen of his, you definitely feel, I think it boils down to the fact that he always went for the honesty of the story. You know, whether it was something like this, whether it was something like the big sleep, whether even something like Land of the Pharaohs, which is not a great movie, but it it still is it's still an interesting epic to to watch and to see him do that. And then you look at something like Scarface, which kind of has some of the same similarities in terms of tone in as something like bringing up baby but also adheres very much to what the crime genre in the 30s and 40s looked like. Mm-hmm. And, it, I mean, even in The Big Sleep, where you have the scenes with Bogey and Bacall, you have the scene where, you know, they're on the phone together and they're, like, messing with the police and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, it goes back to that same style of just rat tat rapid fire dialogue and just the way that the delivery uh, happens. It's, it's yeah. just absolutely fascinating to watch and to see him adapt that style from genre to genre. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, Howard Hawks, I mean, if you were to look at his, you know, list of films, I mean, it's a long list of some of the great films of, of all time and just, that he was able to coax that, that rat-a-tat-tat, that honesty, that truth, just, uh, I mean, he he was able to coax some of the best performances. He coaxed uh, for John Wayne, Red River, one of his best performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, like just there was an honesty uh, in that. So, but uh, yeah, we could, we could probably do a couple hours just on <laughs> Howard Hawks. Yeah. Um, th- this movie, though, I, I love how it starts off you know, it starts off saying up the, it, I, I like how it starts off basically, it basically starts off telling you the story. I love the way exposition is treated in this movie because it's not treated like a chore. It's treated like just a natural part of this plot kicking in. Right. And, you know, you find out about the bone, you find out the fact that he's about to get married, you find out, oh, he needs money for the museum, and you find out, oh, hey, look, he, the, the lawyer happens to be in the same place as Catherine Hepburn. I wonder if those two are connected somehow. And mm-hmm. sure enough, they are. And, you know, also, in addition to the performances of Hepburn and Grant, you also have to give 
credit to the animal wrangler, wranglers who helped deliver the performances of uh, Baby and George, the oh, leopard sure. and the dog, because those who are just as crucial to the success of this movie as any of the uh, actual performers are, human well, performers are. Well, and also, and I have to acknowledge, of course, one of my favorite all-time character actors is in this movie, Mr. Barry Fitzgerald, uh, who's who's wonderful as uh, Aloysius, and, mm. uh, and of course, Mae Robeson. I mean, there's just that's another thing about a lot of these movies of of these periods, like what we discussed previously in The Grapes of Wrath. Like, there was a time when these character actors would just come back, and they would pop in for like you know, like a scene or two, but. In, you know, they wouldn't have a lot of screen time or a lot of dialogue, but they'd be memorable. You would remember yeah. that. And like, uh, it was like the old thing that, um, that's why I think I wish I was a, a character actor from the 30s and 40s in another <laughs> life. I, I would have loved to have been a member of the Howard Hawks stock company or the Frank Capper or the John Ford, you know, like, yeah. uh, like but uh, it's always worth mentioning about like uh, just the great, as great as, Miss Hepburn and Mr. Grant were, it's always like a lot of these movies, they were just peppered with great, great, great uh, supporting characters uh, that uh, that just really, really... Oh, yeah. Be... I mean, and you you think about later when they're in prison and they're trying to get in contact with her mother and it's like, oh, no, or her aunt, and it's like, oh, no, she's she's up in bed. She yeah. She's up in bed. I, I don't have to worry about my niece and it's like she's saying there's you you don't have an aunt it's like a that makes no that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but at the same time it, it's just the way those situations unfold and the way that those those narrative devices because it all builds up to this idea that everything that they've been telling the officers is true just not necessarily in the way that they expected because it's like, oh wow, now there are two leopards on the run. And and that and that's farce. Like yeah. there's always like <laughs> miscommunication, mistaken identities or all and just, you know, people who uh aren't listening or but everything is mistaken. And it just it's like, oh and then you as the audience are like, oh God, you know, it's just you know it's gonna get worse before it gets better. And it's yeah and it's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's I I love that there's this one moment when they're at the when when they're at the house and mm -hmm. you know they're they're trying to they're they're trying to find the bone and all of that stuff and they're trying to keep this from her aunt and uh there there is a point where Catherine Hepburn reveals, oh no, this is all part of a plan for me. Like this is all part of a plan because of the fact that I love him, and you know it's it's just this one throwaway moment that is crucial to the entire film because not only does everything that she do, not only does it make everything that she's doing make much more sense, but also adds another layer to her character that okay she's not as daffy and as unpredictable as. I mean, she's still unpredictable. She just knows it's... But she's not unpredictable for herself. She understands right. what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, it, uh, it... it Again, it just comes back to, like, the interplay between 
Cary Grant and, and uh, Catherine Hepburn. And I could say also uh, the when the uh, in the end when the uh, the skeleton collapses, I could probably watch that about you know ten times. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. still funny. It is. It's still. And that's and that's the testament of like there are you think of like you know the comedies that you know throughout the history of you know Hollywood like that that are still that genuinely funny like mm-hmm. bringing up some like it hot or you know the Nutty Professor or what have you um, it's still it's still very 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 funny yeah yeah and you know it's it's interesting to. It's interesting how, at least in terms of the, some of the most memorable comedies, like farce seems to have been the basic structure of film comedy that really started to take shape after the silent era, once dialogue mm-hmm. started to come into movies. And it's like you had you you had the great silent masters like Chaplin, like Keaton, like Lloyd, um, where all of that, obviously, they didn't have dialogue. And in some cases, like Chaplin didn't even use dialogue. But um, the way that they built their comedy is very specific to a certain extent and to almost to an extent where you wouldn't have necessarily seen them try to do that in the 30s. I mean... You know, in the '30s on, I mean, you know, Chaplin and Keaton did it to a certain extent. Some of their movies, like The Cameraman and other, and uh, The Great Dictator for Chaplin, but um, at the same time, their the approach to comedy had to shift with di- with the addition of dialogue. And it's interesting that starting with movies like Duck Soup. And this movie, and then His Girl Friday, and then leading up to stuff like some, like at High and even What's Up Doc, uh, you have this, it, it, where most of the most beloved comedies from this era, that span of decades, really do belong to this slapstick farce school of comedy. Oh, sure. And like, you know, they tried to, I mean, you know, this, uh, like I said, is the gold standard, but then like there were a lot of other farces that kind of came along. I mean, Arsenic and Old Lace to a certain extent, which Frank Capra did in 46 is, uh, has kind of not only the addition of farce, but also kind of a little bit of a a murder mystery element uh, in their comedy. But like, uh, and there were a lot of uh, imitators of imitators of of Hawks, but like, they, you know, the imitators, uh, they were never really able to capture that, I don't know, that, that Hawks style, uh, that, that rhythm. There's a music to, like, you know, when you watch it, like, you know, like I said, like, there's just a rhythm and there's just a music to, to farce that, uh, it's like jazz, that, that it's, 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 it's fun to watch when it's, when it's, when it's successful. Yeah, and you brought up uh, Arsenic and Old Lace bringing up uh, adding the idea of a murder mystery. And, uh, you know, certainly both of those ideas are very theatrical. I mean, you know, we're, you know, if of a if you're familiar with the idea of, like, these murder mystery weekends where actors play out, like, Agatha sure. Christie-type murder mysteries, I mean, you know, it's like those two do kind of go hand in hand, so it kind of makes 
makes sense. And then, you know, almost concurrently, and I think this really did start with Wilder and, uh, I mean, maybe not necessarily started with Wilder, but at least he took it into a new direction, which is the idea of dark comedy. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about it a little bit with uh, Sunset Boulevard, Boulevard, which is very, which is very much a, which has a lot of different different genres in play. You have you you kind of have the murder mystery, you have the Hollywood drama, you have the film noir, but you also have this level of dark comedy in the way that Norma Desmond's life has become, and the the way William Holden comes into it, and he really, I mean, I think once. Once he really started to come onto the stage as somebody who was exploring comedy on film, I think he's the, you know, after Hawks, I feel like, you know, to a certain extent, so the silent era, you had Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd doing basically dominating comedy. In the 30s and 40s, you had stuff like the Marx Brothers, and you had Howard Hawks who were really starting to bring bring yeah. a next evolution. Then you had Wilder, and then then you started to have filmmakers who were inspired by Wilder, and then eventually, it's it's weird the way the 70s and 80s started to, the 80s completely took a completely different shift once you started to get like teen comedies and then more mature ideas, for lack of a better term, like John Hughes. So, well, you know, I mean, and comedy is a hard because uh, you know it's hard to know, like you know, with the trends with comedy. I mean, uh, you know, with in the '40s, you know, of course, you know, with, when there was more of a reliance on you know uh, dialogue, and there were some comedians like you think of the films of Bob Hope, where um, or the road, the Road Two pictures, which I think are a lot of fun. But they're movies that, you know, they're adventure comedies, but the tongue planted firmly in cheek. And it was an excuse for like, you know, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby to, you know, say witty and funny lines. And uh, but they were movies that uh, that kind of comedy were movies that, uh, okay, we know that, like, we're not taking ourselves that seriously. We're just having a good time. Mm -hmm. Whereas that and that kind of played through like all of Bob Hope's films, uh, a lot of the, the comedies where it was just a kind of a showcase for him to, you know, be incredibly funny, which he was, uh, I'd say by very, very rarely, I can't really think of a lot of farces. I mean, Blake Edwards did The Great Race, I think, which was kind mm-hmm. of uh, an homage to farce in, in 65, uh, had the, you know, uh, you know, the great pie fight. Uh, it's not like there are just, I mean, like with anything, there are just different schools of, uh, of comedy. And well, I think, well know, when well, with Blake Edwards, and I can't believe I forgot, you have the Pink Panther movies with Peter Sellers. Of course. Of course, so, yeah. And, you know, it, it, it got me thinking. I, I think part of the reason Farce kind of fell out of favor is the fact that it was with Mel Brooks, starting with the producers and then Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, Farce basically turned into parodies. And where you would use parody to make fun of genres. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, whether you're talking about TV show like Get Smart, which is very funny, and very farcical, yeah. but it's also it's also making fun of spy stuff. It's also, and then you see him with the producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein. Then 
as you have like ZAZ come in with Airplane, and I mean, this kind of goes into an extension with the discussion I had on parody films last year with uh, Robert Yannis Jr. And um, it's it's one of those things where it's like, it, again, it's this weird evolution of a genre. And mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's 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 interesting to see how comedy did. But yeah, with with Blake Edwards, and I can't believe I forgot the Pink Panther movies because <laughs> those are those are completely farce. Oh sure. Um, but yeah, no, uh, bringing up baby, I mean, we, we haven't really talked about, it, um, you know, we, we haven't talked about it quite that much, but I mean, honestly, it, it's well worth checking out. It is a part of the Criterion collection. And I, 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 I agree that ending is just absolutely wonderful and it's absolutely perfect because of the fact that as soon as it, it's funny because of the fact that it, it pays off the romance that has blossomed between those two, but also pay, pays off the chaotic nature of uh, Susan. And yes. because of the fact that it's like, oh, hey, she found his bone, but then the dinosaur just, then the dinosaur skeleton just collapses. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that's obviously the natural ending to that story. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean Howard Hawks is Howard Hawks is a fascinating filmmaker, and I'm I'm starting to I'm starting to get back into uh, some of his some of his uh, work that I've uh, missed over the years, and it's it's been interesting. And but yeah, Bringing Up Baby is one that I've just always really enjoyed. Um, I was going to go in order of release, but I decided with our because we were talking, we have talked about the silent era. We have talked about the evolution of genre in filmmaking. Why don't we talk about film that deals with that very subject in 1952's *Singing in the Rain*, directed by mm -hmm. Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly? Uh, I, I, and the first thing I will say is I, I think this is is wonderful that this movie basically turned the transition from silent to sound films into the ultimate expression of what a filmmaker can do with sound, which is the movie musical. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there are this, there are movies that, you know, you pick a scene and, you know, whether it's, the famous singing in the rain scene that Gene Kelly does, or the make him laugh scene, the dizzying Donald O'Connor uh, dance sequence. And it's just, um, it, it's, an, it's an extraordinary movie. And it's still also like, these are one of these, one of these movies that just stands the test of time. And, you know, with Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly and everybody involved, and it's a beautiful looking film and the story that it tells, you know, it's, uh, no, it, it it holds up very very well. Yeah, I I to a certain extent I forgot just how joyous this movie is right from the opening credits. It it's been a number of years since I I think last time I'd seen this was shortly after Debbie Reynolds passed away, and um so it's been it's been a number of years, but it's it's just from the first moment and I love that in. The thing that I kind of love about this movie is that, you know, we there are a lot of movies that are very nerdy about film. 
and you know you 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 associate that more with nowadays where you're you you look at films that look at the filmmaking process i mean even something as dark as like brian de palma's blowout does Mm -hmm. does this and the sound design but the way that but you also have movies like David Mamet's State Maine, which is very much uh, Hollywood comedy. Mm-hmm. But you also kind of feel like, and even something like Bowfinger, Frank Oz's Bowfinger mm-hmm. with Steve Martin and A. Murphy, where it's like, you know, you, you feel like even as a film fan, you're kind of learning about film production as you go along. It's interesting that one of the most acclaimed movies, and certainly probably the most acclaimed musical of all time is very much a movie in that vein because Mm -hmm. it does a really good job of explaining the way that Hollywood transitioned from silent to sound. Absolutely. And, and how dramatic of a change it was. I mean, you know, you know, how hard it was for actors. I mean, there's, there was an, a very, very famous silent film actor, John Gilbert, who was this dashing leading man type. And then when the talkies came, nobody wanted to hire him. And that happened to a lot of actors. And so, and I know that's a, you know, something that underneath the surface for the Don Lockwood character, like, oh God, now that the talkies, like, you know, like what, like, am I going to have a career? Like, you know, yeah. and that's, and that's, that's very, very a real uh, sentiment that a lot of, uh, actors and writers and directors had when that, uh, you know, that shift, uh, that shift happened. Yeah. And the thing that is, I, I think the first thing that is absolutely, uh, wonderful about this, the, one of the early scenes that really made me fall in love with this movie again was at the Hollywood premiere of, uh, their, their latest film together and, um, of, uh, Lockwood and Lamont's film together and everybody is arriving, and Donald is the one speaking, so we don't hear Lamont's voice. Mm-hmm. And I love that that you that choice to not really have anybody speaking is really kind of indicative of the fact that oh, the silent era—it's like you didn't necessarily know who, how voices, how these people's voices sounded, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just such a really great touch. And of course, the the comedic punchline is that uh, Lena Lamont, uh, Jane Hagen's character, has has an absolutely atrocious voice, and it's <laughs> like you you would never cast her in a talkie, like unless you were going for something very specifically comedic. Sure. And uh, it's it's just such a wonderful choice to that they did that to really um emphasize that this was the time period in Hollywood and then I I I just love all of the little details about going into how Hollywood movies were made at the time and the way that you know the sets changed from when you were on a silent film where the director was free to talk throughout and give direction as the camera was rolling to sound where it's like, oh, they had to be in a uh, booth for a while. So um, it's, no, this is, this is just pure, pure delight from moment, moment one. 
It really is. And it, you, it, like you said, it really does, uh, does show that, that shift, uh, you know, just of, of, of how hard it was, but obviously people managed. And then of course, you know, then the innovations that came after, you know, with, uh, with, you know, things that you could do with the camera and with editing and all of that, uh, no, it, uh, this is very much a, like, a a one, a wonderful, fun, uh, exciting, uh, great uh, script by Betty Comden and Adolph Green and wonderful music, but also a really like, I think an incisive look into, uh, you know, uh, the shift in, in, in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and of course it still holds up and, uh, you know, and it, this is one of those movies that the joy of, of filmmaking and the joy of film viewing. Like, I think all three of the films that we're discussing, I think it's, you just, you see that, like, you know, you watch these three movies um, and I, you just can't find anything. There's, there's just nothing wrong with it. Like, and you just, you see the joy that was made in the making of all of them. Like, they're just like how they're all intricately uh, put together. Um, it is interesting, like uh, Gene Hagen's performance, uh, you know, and of course Gene Hagen, you know, like playing up like the voice and everything like that. Very, very funny. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you go back and you read uh, some modern day, I went back and I read some modern day reviews and, and many of them, some of them uh, spoke very, not unkindly of her. They thought, I think that her performance was a little too over the top. Yeah, uh, I I don't I don't feel that way. I thought you know what what they were trying to do. Uh, I think it works, and I think mm -hmm. it's it is really funny. And there's actually she's so um, she has such she brings such humanity mm -hmm. to the to the character. And I and of course she earned uh, I think she earned the film's sole acting Oscar nomination. I think it was. I, I knowing from Gene Kelly's um, you know autobiography that I think that he was always a little bothered that he didn't get a Best Actor Oscar nomination for the, this performance. Yeah, he and he probably should. That is, I mean, she she is terrific in this, and you're you're right about the fact that really she really does bring a lot of heart to this character. That and yeah, I mean, I can see how I can see how the voice can be grating. But at the same time, I don't know that it's... I don't think I would say it's over the top, though, because of the fact that, I mean, I I think it's... I I think it... you, I, I think at the time, what are you going to do with her voice? What, what else are you going to ask her to do with her voice to right. make it seem like, oh, she would never work in sound pictures? Yeah. Like, how are you going to do that? But I, I do. The thing that is great about this is the fact that it's like, you know, they they really do like like you said. I mean, she she's kind of treated as the villain in this because of mm -hmm. the fact that for a variety of reasons, because of the fact that she got Debbie Brown's character fired, the fact that she's trying to essentially blackmail the studio to keep her stardom going. Sure. But at the same time, they're also dubbing her voice, like, after the fact without really telling her. So it's like, they're not treating her well either. 
And, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting, you know, it's it's interesting how it kind of plays to some ideas of studio politics that unfortunately are still going on. It's like yeah. we, we do, we not not just in terms of the, the uh, treatment of women in Hollywood as far as like as their acting careers progress, but also just just how we how we treat like secondary uh, performers like you know like the Kathy character like Debbie Brown's character who is essentially doing voiceover and mm-hmm. you know she's not getting the 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 credit and um, you know it's 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 one of those things where it's like I this this movie this movie works because of the fact that a it's just so damn entertaining like the musical mm-hmm. numbers are wonderful the the way Donnan uses the camera and choreography and you know the way he edits and shoots the musical moments are just absolutely delightful i mean of course the performers as well mm-hmm. um and uh it's but also the fact that this is this is a movie where I think even, you know, Donnan is a very successful, you know, he, he had a really strong career as well. He also did Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which my wife loves. He did Charade, which my mother loves. And I mean, I love it too. But uh, it's, and he he just did a lot of really wonderful perform. He did really, some really lovely work. I mean, I... You know, we think so much about Gene Kelly in terms of singing in the rain, but I mean, really, uh, him, Stanley Doan's directing is as important to the success of this movie as what Kelly brings as a performer and choreographer as well. Absolutely. Now, he, uh, Stanley Donen is one of those directors, you know, that you don't, uh, you know, in the discussion of the great directors, his name doesn't come up uh, quite enough. I mean, you think of, you know, all of the, uh, I mean, just the variety of, of the movies that he's done. I mean, of course, all like, you know, On the Town, and I think, uh, you know, all, all of the uh, the musicals that he did. And Royal Wedding is another one that comes to mind, you know, off the top of my head. Um, and he had a long, long, long career. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, I think, there are people who, you know, think that Gene Kelly directed, you know, more than 50% of the movie. I mean, you know, there's always going to be those those kinds of arguments. I mean, obviously, Gene Kelly did the choreography. Um, but Stanley Donnan, like, his touch is very, very much um, mm-hmm. the film as it is in, in, in all of his films. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, there, if, if you're, if, if you are a geek about of the filmmaking process and you haven't seen Singing in the Rain, uh, first of all, you know, it's, I believe it's available on HBO Max, so feel free to uh, do so. But this this really is, I think, a very underrated film when it comes to the look of film and the way, the look behind the camera as far as filmmaking. And uh, because of those ways that it shows the start of the uh, sound era with the diction coaches, with the ways that they had to record the sound, the way the sound would be recorded if you moved too far away from the camera. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, 
there are so many of those sound device, those devices in terms of sound mixing that are easy to duplicate now, and you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't, you you could easily make a joke out of it now. But you think about the fact that they had to do that in real time in the fifties. It's because this was really before surround sound came into play. Sure. And um, it's it's just such a it's it's just such a delightful film, and it really, you know, I I'm not there aren't a whole lot of Debbie Reynolds films that I'm as that I'm familiar with, but this is one where you really see just a she she is a wonderful presence right off the bat so when as soon as Gene Kelly gets into that car with her, and mm-hmm. it it just doesn't. And she she's just so so delightful in this, and the way that she she is very much a collaborator with Kelly and O'Connor in their sequences together. It's it's just absolutely wonderful. Now she's she's delightful, and uh, no, I mean like uh, she just had a wonderful presence, like not only in this, but of course, like, you know, a lot of her famous roles, like the unsinkable Molly Brown, uh, you know, and, and, but uh, no, she in this is, uh, it, it, like you said, it's uh, across the board, the movie is, is, is just a, it's a delight. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, yeah, there'd have to be something wrong with you if you didn't like this movie. <laughs> didn't like this yeah, movie. it's, 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 it's really wonderful. And it did make me want to, rewatching this does make me want to go back and, start to really fill in some blanks as far as the the great American musicals from this era because I do think this was probably the best era the musical had. And you know, and Stanley Donnan, like, you know, you figure he did Funny Face and the Pajama Game and he co-directed the Dan the film version of Dan Yankees. I mean, he was really at the forefront of a lot of, of those big uh, very successful uh, musicals. I mean, in mm-hmm. the 50s, like, uh, they, that's when the musicals were really, really popular. And in the 60s, it kind of sort of, you know, you had My Fair Lady and The Sound of Music. And then I think then after The Sound of Music, you started to hear more about how much the musicals cost and it was costing the studios and yeah. less, uh, you know, and of course, you know, like how much money that the movies didn't make, uh, unfortunately. And then, you know, the musicals kind of, you know, died out, I guess, in a way, like the kinds of musicals that Stanley Don and uh, certainly the kinds of musicals that like, you know, uh, Singing in the Rain. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, it basically since that era of, since the 60s, it's like you really have seen like very dramatic ebbs and flows in the musical genre. It's like, for for the most part, it's been largely dormant, uh, you know. And it's funny because we had like three or four musicals at least in the past year alone between In the Heights, between West Side Story, and between Tick Tick Boom. And it's mm-hmm. interesting to it's interesting to see the ways in which musicals like that borrow from the classics. And I, I you know it's funny because I would say. You know, something like Tick, Tick, Boom, which is much more insular, which is much more reflective mm-hmm. of the genre, nonetheless, I still think borrows quite a bit from that early genre and stuff like Singing in the Rain. You think about 
some of those sequences in Tick, Tick, Boom, and they arguably have more in common with the classic musicals than In the Heights does, which feels like a traditional musical and arguably more more of a traditional musical outside of like West Side Story, which obviously is a new adaptation of that one. Um, I think I think Tick Tick Boom was very much a love letter to musicals, musical theater, musical films, to the classics. So yeah, I think definitely, and that's you know Lin, Lin Manuel Miranda's like you know his his hand you know like leading uh, leading the way on that you know that wonderful sequence uh, in the diner with all of the the legends of. Broadway, uh, mm. that was the, yeah. Now that was definitely like a nice little homage, like not just to to Broadway, but to uh, I think all musicals. Yeah. So uh, we are going to now close with 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and <laughs> which is probably my favorite John Huston film. Um, I I love the Maltese Falcon. I've seen the Maltese Falcon on the big screen twice. I've been fortunate enough to say, be able to say that. I have seen some of his other films. This one is easily my favorite, and it comes down to the performance by Humphrey Bogart as Fred C. Dobbs. And I, this is I I love that this one like we're all three of these movies are essentially genre movies. It's like bringing up baby as a romantic zombie, saying the rain obviously musical. Treasure of the Sierra Madre really is an old school adventure film. Like and it's it's interesting to see that really because I mean of course it's a drama, it's of course it's a psychological film, but it's also an adventure in oh, a yeah. big way because of the fact that it's essentially one character, it's essentially a character going on a journey. That's, that's what it is. And, you know, this is, this is the, and I love the way that Houston plays that up. Like this is, you know, it's like I, in my, in my review of it that I wrote several years ago, it's like there, there are ways that, you know, I, I was I was likening John Huston to Akira Kurosawa, and I think, I mean, they both were contemporaries. They both were working at the same time, but at the same time, you can tell that there's there's a way that they approach genre in their own ways that I think really set the template for the genre. For, I mean, certainly Kurosawa's influence is legendary. I mean, you know, Mag- Seven Samurai, you know, Seven Samurai, Hidden Fortress, Inspiring Star Wars, Yojimbo, all of those. But with John Huston, I think you can look at something like Treasure of Sierra Madre and you can see as in its own way like the blueprint for something like an Indiana Jones, like Oh, or yeah. even something like the Lost City this year. Now, granted, it's not it's more serious than the Lost City, but it's still this, you know, this adventure taking you into the wilderness and putting obstacles in your direction. And one of the things, and this is also my favorite John Huston film as well. What the movie does still so well was that it points to the audiences that if you were in their situation 
you would do this, you would probably act the same way. Like the greed and the things that like, you know, that we do for, for gold, you know, I mean, uh, it's, a and, and I, th I think it really does like, you know, Indiana Jones, I think that's a really good, like, and especially the last crusade, like, you know, everybody just, they, they just want that little piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, you know, it's like, if you have two partners, well, when it comes down to it, it's like, well, I don't want them to have the piece. I want it all for myself. So, I mean, it, it's just a, a, a wonderful, uh, and, uh, it, it, it really, I mean, I have, I probably haven't seen this in 25 years and it, it does have like moments of, of, of comedy, especially from Walter Houston, who yeah. is wonderful. Probably uh, Walter Houston, I mean, one of the great performances of all time. And mm -hmm. like, just, and it's just, you know, um, it's one of those performances that kind of like the hair on the back of your neck stand because it's just so, it's so good. And of course, Bogart and Tim Holt. Uh, but like the thing that really sells this movie still, I mean, a movie from 1946 is that the audiences can relate to that. Yeah, if I were in that situation, I'd probably, I'd want it all for myself too. Yeah. You know, yeah. that greed and, and, and Houston knew that. And that was like, you know, something that traveled through all of his films, the asphalt jungle, especially, you know, like just that, that, that desire I want it all for myself. And, you know, like, uh, you know, I'll sell my soul for, uh, you know, that, that the gold or that, that piece of the, the good life. Yeah. Because you know, I've already been, I mean, Fred C. Dobbs, he's already hit the bottom. Yeah. He can't go any further. So he wants, you know, desperation and uh, he wants it all. And uh, mm -hmm. this is another one with, with, with Bogart. Um, I mean, Bogart and Houston made many, many, many films together and they just, I mean, I think Bogart was really the perfect actor for John Houston because of course they, they were hard living, they drank together, they mm -hmm. partied together, they had time and like that sense of adventure. And, you know, and also I think, you know, Bogart, I think the reason why Bogart was so strong in this part as well because it kind of relates to Bogart, the person, like, you know, he was mm -hmm. a bit player in Hollywood for a number of years. You know, he was kind of playing, you know, like kind of second banana kind of roles. And then, you know, the, the, um, the petrified forest happened where he was able to really shine and break out on his own. And so like, and he, you know, he, clung his way to the top of Hollywood and he, he eventually of course got there. And that's, you know, that desire. And that's, that's something that I think that when he played Fred C. Dobbs, he can relate to that desire to be, to show that he was better than, you know, second banana yeah. kind of uh, parts in, you know, in, in the, the, a lot of the gangster movies that he did, uh, which he did very, very well in. Mm -hmm. It's interesting watching Bogart in early films and then later films like, you know, but uh, this is, I think, one of his, his best. Yeah. It, it's just an, another example of like, you know, Bogart, there's a lot of silences in the movie where you can, you could see in the eyes of like him looking at Tim Holt and Tim Holt looking at him and mm -hmm. like, just I know what you're thinking. And that's brilliant, uh, you know, setting up the scene from John Huston. Um, you know, of just like ratcheting up that the tension 
I think that's like it, it's it's filled with like you know adventure and the tension is always there because again like that audience relatability of like if we were in that situation we would probably be the same way. Yeah. Uh, no, and and I mean this is this is just such a such a wonderfully stripped down story by by Houston and his screenplay, and uh, you know I I think the thing that the thing that works is the fact that Dobbs is beaten down in life. He's mm-hmm. not none of these none of these main three are bad people. Like you just see the effect of the combination of the possibility of having all this gold yourself, as well as the elements. Because I mean, the elements and the fact that they're alone in a country that is not their own, I think plays a huge part into this. That's kind of another character, yeah. And character. Um, it's 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 sort of it it's is one of those things that's just really really intelligent on Houston's part because it's like if there are some filmmakers who would just if if you were going to adapt this, you you would probably try to overcomplicate it. You know, and and sort of the I think the I, I hate to say it because I still enjoy the movies, but it's like I think you know, it's the difference between the Hobbit as the book, the Tolkien book, versus the Hobbit and the Peter Jackson movies. Mm-hmm. Where it's like the the book is very stripped down, it's very, you know, you get the essentials of what the story is, you can get a continuous push forward to what that story is. And mm-hmm. then but the Peter Jackson movie movies by making it three movies, it it sort of it takes the focus off of what focused the the story, the original story, and mm-hmm. I can see if a filmmaker tried to adapt this now, they would probably be lured into taking their focus off the main story, and I Expanded. love that. I love that you have these moments in the film, like you have the you have the drifter that um, Curtin meets, who comes up and basically throws a wrench into things and say, "Okay, well, you have a choice. You can either let me be a part of this, or you can, you know, tell me you go away. In which case, you're probably going to get caught, or you can kill me. But if you kill me," you have a choice to make in terms of how that's going to play out. Because if you, if one of you do it, then the other two have blackmail over you. But if you all do it together, you know, without really a sense of who did it, you guys are clear. And just, and then you have this idea of uh, Walter Houston's character who basically is who basically has an opportunity to go and help people, and he does, and that ratchets up the tension even more because not only is yeah. his stuff with Dobbs and Curtin, but it it Dobbs and Curtin all of a sudden become more and more unhinged. And you know the thing that really connected with me so much more this time watching it for this record was Tim Holt's performance. He he's kind of like the forgotten person in this yeah. movie. 
he's really effective because of the fact that you see you see the dynamic that you see the friendship that he gets in with Dobbs because of mm-hmm. the fact that they find themselves in the same situation. They also find themselves in the same predicament than when they beat up McCormick when he can't produce their money. And then um, you see the and then you see the friendship and the ways that they learn off of Howard, the Walter Houston character. Mm-hmm. And but at the same time, as they're starting to find more and more gold, you see those cracks starting to show. Sure. And just the slow burn of that psychological aspect of it is just absolutely wonderful to watch in this film. Yeah, it uh, it really is. Uh, Tim Holt, I don't know if he uh, acted much after uh, this uh, movie. I mean, uh, I know he died relatively young, but I think he I think he did a lot of like B movies. But this was certainly like the most popular movie, and he's mm-hmm. a, it's an, it's an underrated performance because like Bogart, like him, the the wonderful thing that a lot of unspoken is that you just see that the desperation, yeah, the desperate and the mistrust and the and the greed and and all of that. And I think that's one of the reasons why that this movie has remained remains a classic is that uh, again that relatability and uh, and the effectiveness of like you know like you said like the elements are another character. So they're they're not only they're against that they're against. You know, they they're against time because they might have you know they may have limited resources like water and food and things like that, and there's also just that I don't trust you. I don't trust mm-hmm. like you know that I'm gonna I'm not gonna close my eyes because I'm afraid that you know I'm not gonna wake up again. I mean yeah. that's it. Um, no, it, it's effective. I would hate uh, you know in this day and age of like you know where everybody's remaking anything. I would be disappointed if they remade a yeah. movie like this they would they would attempt to like stretch it out and it's, it's whenever I, I see that happen it's kind of like you try to improve what does not need to be improved mm-hmm. i mean uh, you know, so it's like uh, I thankfully hope leave this one alone <laughs> yeah well and then you have in you also have the bandits that show up who, oh, yeah. who don't need no stinking badges as this is often misquoted um, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because of the fact that it's like I had I certainly had that quote in my head before I saw the movie, and you realize that it's not it's not the right way of saying it. Right. And, but the thing is, you look at the way that they say it in the movie; it makes is not only it's not only a better line; it's a funnier line too, because of the fact that it's like it just builds up to the point where they say we don't need no stinking badges. Or you, we don't need to show you our stinking badges. Yeah. And the way that that builds up, and the way that the the way that this climax builds up too, it's like you once it's like Howard was the person that was the glue that was holding these trio together mm-hmm. because he understood and he knows what this will do to people, and I. Uh, once he leaves, it basically becomes a matter. It it basically really only be, becomes a matter of time when Dobbs snaps, and we do think it's probably going to be Dobbs who 
snaps because he's shown more likely that that's going to be the scenario that plays out. Yeah. Well, and one of the things also that the movie shows is that, you know, that you see like, you know, the desperation of, of Dobbs that he is willing to kill for this is that Houston winks to the audience is that that is within all of us. Yeah. That was, in that that kind of uh, mentality, it is within within all of us. If we were, you know, if you are really down the way that you know Dobbs and uh, and Curtin is, um, the things that you're willing to do, excuse me, to uh, get that you know that the gold or you know whatever idol it is that you're you're after. And that, uh, I mean, again, all you got to do is just watch it. You just look at Bogart's eyes and you just see that internal rage. And it's, oh, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's funny because of the fact that it's like you think about the Maltese Falcon, which is very much in the same vein of that, just in the nature of film noir, as opposed Mm -hmm. to an adventure. And uh, I mean, even, I mean, even uh, even Casablanca is like that too because everybody's after the letters of transit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it it's that MacGuffin issue that's sure. at play where it's like every what is what are the people after in this movie, and mm-hmm. you know, in this case, it's gold, and you know, it's it's one of those things where I I think the reason part of the reason that this is my favorite John Huston movie other than the fact that it's just really entertaining and probably in probably the best collaboration he had with uh, Bogart is the fact that it really makes this situation which right now is not necessarily a situation anybody would be in but at the same time it it's tapping into those elemental aspects of greed and paranoia and anxiety. I mean, even if you if you think about the Safdie Brothers Uncut Gems is the same kind of thing with Adam Sandler's character. Oh, sure. Now, that's a different addiction. That's an addiction to gambling that gets him in trouble, but it's the same, it's the same elemental emotions. Well, and they're all uh, morality tales. I mean, they're all kinds of things. What are you willing to do what are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice your your morals, your humanity, your uh, you know your laws of like you know uh, you know of, of of fairness or what have you to get whatever this is or to whatever to solve this problem? Are you willing to kill? And yeah. can you live? And that's those are all I I think just really really important questions and things that have made a lot of movies, especially movies that John Huston made. I think that was like always the big uh, issue, like a thing that he was always addressing in a lot of his movies, especially in, you know, um, uh, you know, Maltese Falcon or this film or the Asphalt uh, Jungle and many of the other, the Under the Volcano was another one that comes to mind, you know, just a lot of, uh, of, of movies that like, of characters that, of a moral center that, if at first, you know, they have a strong moral center and then this thing, this, this thing is dangling in front of them that what are they willing to do? And that's that, you know, to, to get it. Yeah. Or are they, willing to, you know, and that's, and that, that's all things that, you know, again, that all of us can relate to, mm-hmm. you know, 
are we willing to, you know, sacrifice our, our morals and our ethics and our humanity for that? No, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I, I cannot recommend Treasure of Sierra Madre enough. It's, it's, it's one of the best films I've ever seen. It's, it's, like I said, it's my favorite John Huston one. And I mean, all of these, all of these that we're talking about today are just really well worth. And hopefully one of the things that we've done in, in this discussion is we've, we've sort of painted a picture of not only what these meant in the context of the time they were made, but also where you see their influences moving forward. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all three of these filmmakers, I mean, I, you know, I, I think Hawks, I think Houston's probably arguably the most acclaimed of the three that we've talked about. I mean, certainly Hawks is, is well esteemed Don. And I think kind of gets forgotten because of his collaborators, because, you know, and it was a, joke for a long time that charade was the best film that Hitchcock never made. Um, <laughs> although it is a, it's, it's a wonderful example of the Hitchcockian form, but it's very much a Stanley Donnan film too. Oh, yeah. When you, when you watch it, um, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that's so great about each of these films is they, in a way they're very much touchstones of the genres that they're in Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think really, you know, if you're a fan of these genres, if you're a fan of these actors, certainly be sure to watch them if you haven't already. But if you're a fan of these genres, I mean, you, it's, it's almost essential to watch all of these. If um, I think, you know, without Treasure of the Sierra Madre, I don't think there's an Indiana Jones. I don't think there's... Uh, you know, a lot of those kinds of uh, adventure, I mean, you know, films looking for for gold. Musicals, I mean, like, again, in, in each of these genres, many of these films are the gold standard mm-hmm. of their respective genre. Singing in the Rain is probably, if it's not the greatest movie musical, it, it's certainly in the top five. Uh, Bringing Up Baby is, is up, I think, in the top five top 10 of the greatest uh, comedies uh, ever made. And Treasure of Sierra Madre is, uh, I think, you know, of, of adventure and yeah. of this kind of, you know, uh, adventure, the quest for, you know, a prize or a gold or, uh, you know, it's that, it's that every movie that of that genre that came afterwards sprung from the tree of, 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 the, of that wonderful John Huston movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Tim, once again, thank you very much for joining me to talk about some older movies. I, I've really always, I've really enjoyed these discussions. I'm looking forward to the next time that we talk. Always a pleasure, Brian. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank Tim for joining me on the podcast today. It's always great to talk to him. We will have more established classics um, later on in the year. I've already got three in mind that I'm looking forward to talking to him about. Uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Like I teased, I've got some really great guests and really great ideas for topics coming up. A uh, lot of return guests, but and hopefully a couple first-timers. Uh, you can check us out at uh, Sonic Cinema Podcast on YouTube, Apple, Google, Spotify, and elsewhere. You can also check me out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, and also I have finished composing my 
first feature-length film score. It's for Brian Ackley's Player PhD. Uh, if Brian's name is familiar, he's been on the podcast several times. We've talked about his work. We've talked about other people's work. It's been really great to collaborate with him on this project. I'm looking forward to people hear, seeing it and hearing it. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. And be sure to check us out, as always, on www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you.